Congratulations. You made it to the end of Ephesians. Can you believe it? The first week in January, all the way till mid-May, we have been working our way, plotting our way verse by verse through this great epistle of the faith. This is really the first time since I've been here that we have worked our way systematically through an entire book. And that is the way, most likely, that we will work from here on out. So next week when you come, I'm not going to tell you what we're going to be in. I want you to wait with bated breath. But we will be in an Old Testament book next week, beginning a new study together. And you'll just have to continue to guess what it is until I reveal it to you. So Ephesians 6 10 to 23, Paul is concluding this great letter and he teaches on a very well-known passage of Scripture, the armor of God. If you're in Christ today, whether you realize it or not, you are in a daily battle. You are in a battle every time that you wake up. Spiritual warfare is happening as we speak. Now, generally, Baptists don't talk a lot about spiritual warfare. But it's in the text. It's real. Paul talks about it regularly throughout his epistles. And today he actually gives us a strategy about how to defend the tactics of the enemy. And this is this passage that he gives us in chapter 10 through basically verse 19. So we can be guilty of two extremes when it comes to talking about spiritual warfare. We can ignore it and act like it doesn't exist. Or we can make everything in our lives about spiritual warfare. And that everything that we do is the devil attacking us, attacking us, attacking us. Both extremes are unhealthy. Both are unbiblical. Paul actually gives us a very healthy way to understand biblical war- spiritual warfare in this passage today. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology is very clear. He points out that Satan is the originator of sin. And that is true. We do not dispute that. Satan is alive. He is active. He is working. He is trying to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. He is trying to destroy the lives of Christians by getting them to be deceived about sin. Distorting the truth. Deceiving them. So it's real. Satan is the originator of sin. So we do not want to discount or downplay the existence of Satan in our lives, if you're in Christ. But we also don't want to overplay the significance. And we don't want to give more credit to Satan than that which he actually deserves. Charles Hodge was a theologian that taught in Princeton in the 1800s. And in his systematic theology book, he points out a couple of things that are really important for us to know. Number one, demons and Satan can only act under the control of God and by his permission. Number two, they can only act within the laws of nature. And number three, they cannot interfere with the freedom and responsibility of man. So Satan and demons are real. They are opposed to God and the kingdom of God, but they do not act independently of God since God is sovereign over all of his creation. There is no one who can out-control or out-maneuver God. The book of Job gives us a great example of that very thing. So today, as we look over this passage, we're going to look at three primary points that come straight from the text today. Number one, we are in a battle. Number two, God has made provision for that battle. 
And then number three, we walk in peace and love. Number one, we are in a battle. Number two, God has made provision. And then number three, we walk in peace and in love. As Paul concludes his letter, he gives us this huge hint by using the word finally. And you don't have to try to figure out what finally means. It means what it means. Paul is telling us that he is closing out this epistle. And he is encouraging these Ephesian Christians to be strong in the strength of the Lord. But to rest completely in the strength of Christ and his might for us. We do not have to be strong in ourselves as we follow Christ. We are strong in Christ. He is the one that gives us strength. When we are faithless, he is faithful. When we are sinners, he is sinless. When we are weak, he is strong. Paul is encouraging these Ephesian Christians as this letter comes to a conclusion to remember that we walk in the strength of someone else. We do not walk in our own strength. Weakness for a Christian is not a character flaw. It is a virtue. It is exactly where Christ wants us to be. Because when we are weak in and ourselves, we can be strong in Christ. And Paul gives the first reference to this armor in verse 11. He tells these believers to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. How can the believer be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might? By putting on the armor of God. Now this idea of standing is a defensive posture. So all of the armor of God that we're about to unpack and talk about outside of the sword of the spirit are defensive in nature. Imagine one standing Preventing an enemy from going further past him. That is what primarily the armor of God that Paul talks about in this passage is. It is to protect us. It is to prevent the devil from gaining any further traction in our lives. And he begins by reminding these Ephesian Christians, as he reminds us today, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the supernatural. What is the supernatural that he talks about here? The rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, the present darkness, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan does not simply work through evil means. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Oftentimes when we think of Satan working, we think of him working in grotesque and hideous ways like drugs and adultery and murder. Yes, he works in those ways, but he also works in more subtle ways. He can work through good things that we as Christians have made the ultimate thing. This is what happened to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Idolatry. That is how Satan oftentimes works. He doesn't always work just through bad things. He can work through good things. He can work through neutral things. Anything that will pull you away from Christ, he can use against you. He will try to deceive and to entice you 
through things that are not explicitly, perhaps, addressed in God's word. But that still would ultimately be harmful to your walk with Christ. He can use the simple distractions of life to pull you away from your relationship with the Lord. And those distractions often come in the forms of good things, like your family, like your friends, like your job, sports, relationships, money, all things that God has given us. But when we make them the ultimate, they become our God. And that is exactly, oftentimes, how Satan works in the lives of believers. We know what the Word of God says about adultery. We know what it says about murder. But it's those things that are not explicitly addressed in the text that oftentimes Satan uses to trick us and to deceive us. Therefore, Paul says in this passage that you have to stand against the schemes of the devil. Satan wants to take you and me down. He wants to divide the church of Jesus Christ. He wants Christians to damage their witness to a lost world. And the reality is, it's human nature for all of us in this room that when things are going well in our spiritual lives, we begin to coast. And we begin to think, I really don't have to put in the time with the Lord today because things are going well in my life. God is blessing me. And brothers and sisters, that, exactly, that is exactly what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to just coast. He wants you to be apathetic. He wants you to be half committed to the body of Christ. That would be one of his greatest accomplishments if he could just get Christians to be lukewarm about the church of Jesus Christ. He would be so satisfied with that. He's not looking for you to just become a drug addict. He will take you just being halfway committed to Jesus and his church. That is a victory for Satan. So God right now in our congregation is working. People are coming. People are joining our church. We see spiritual fruit of that. And that is the moment to be even more vigilant in fighting for unity, in praying for unity, and asking the Holy Spirit to guide us as a church to show us which direction we should go. That is even more of a reason that we should have times of confession and repentance so that we turn from our sin and trust in Christ alone. If God is moving in your life spiritually right now, do not get comfortable. Read your Bible more. Pray more. Stay connected to his church even more because Satan is smart enough to know that when Christians are going through a trial they often return back to God. But when things are going well, they begin to rely on themselves. So if God is moving in your life right now, brother and sister, stay vigilant in praying, in reading the scriptures. Ask God to keep you sensitive to your sin, to give you a soft heart so that you can repent of that sin quickly and ask for forgiveness. We are in a battle brothers and sisters, whether you realize it or not, we must stand against the schemes of the devil. Do not take it lightly. And that is what Paul says here in these verses. 
Now, how do we stand against the schemes of the devil? Well, thankfully, God made provision for that. And Paul explains what that provision is. If you're in Christ today, God has provided for you armor that he wants you to use in your battle against the enemy. He has not left you helpless. The point of this armor is to help you stand firm in your faith. So we're going to look at all of these different pieces of armor that Paul discusses today. The first one is the belt of truth. Remember, all of these outside of the sword of the Spirit are defensive in nature. What is the belt of truth? You stand firm against the enemy by knowing the truth. The truth of what? The truth of God's word. The truth of the teachings of Jesus. The truth of the gospel as revealed in the New Testament. Satan wants to distort truth. That is how he works. Look back in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. What does he get Eve to admit to? He gets her to admit that maybe she shouldn't trust the word of God. Maybe what God told her about eating from that specific tree was actually not true. That is how Satan works. Paul is saying here, put on the belt of truth. That's one of the reasons this year that we're reading the Bible together as a church family so that we can know the truth of God's word better because Satan is well aware that Christians around the world have an enormous amount of biblical illiteracy. In other words, we don't know the Bible as well as we should. If we go back 500 years in church history, they knew the Bible way better than we did. If you go back even 100 years in church history, they knew their Bibles way better than we do. And so we're reading the Bible together so that we can be equipped and have that belt of truth on so that when Satan tries to distort the truth, we can go back to God's word and say, that is not what it says. Here's what God's word says. So when someone who is not a follower of Jesus approaches you, maybe friends, family members that you have, and they begin to ask you questions about why do Christians make such a big deal about issues like homosexuality or abortion or any other hot topic issue that you can think of. You need to be able to show them in God's word why it matters. You don't need to point them to some talking head on Fox News or CNN as your source of authority. Because they are not your source of authority. God's word is your source of authority. Do not send them a three-minute video clip from the nightly news to argue your point about why homosexuality is wrong. Take them to the word of God. That is what changes hearts. Tucker Carlson does not change hearts. Or any other talking head. That's just the one that came to mind. Knowing truth helps you defend truth. So wear the belt of truth. Number two, the breastplate of righteousness. What does Paul mean by the breastplate of righteousness? It means that we as Christians should deal with others with integrity and with righteousness. We want to put that on in our dealings with people. We want to defend, we want to stand firm against Satan by acting with righteousness and integrity in Christ. 
Number three, shoes, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Remember, these are defensive items. These shoes are not used to go out and proclaim the gospel of peace, but to protect the individual as the enemy brings his attacks on them. When Satan attacks you or your family, which if he hasn't, he will. The gospel of peace is an ally in your life. When you go through difficult times, we need to be reminded of the peace that only God provides. It is in those moments of trials and suffering and pain that we must remember that the Christian has peace in their heart because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. The shield of faith, Paul says in verse 16, he spends the most amount of time on this element of the armor. He gives it a prominent place in the passage. He says, in all circumstances, take up this piece of equipment because this is the piece of equipment that can extinguish all the flaming darts, Paul says, of the evil one. Frank Thielman, in his commentary on Ephesians, says this, the shield of faith serves as an effective defense. It is the means through which the believer's salvation, access to God, and relationship with Christ remain secure. It is also the foundation of the church's unity. It is then the ultimate defense against the devil's strategies. It is our faith in Christ that unites us as a body of believers. It is our faith in Christ that gives us access to God himself. And it is our faith in Christ that helps us defend the works of the devil as he tries to attack us in our everyday life. When tragedy strikes, when suffering comes your way, we need to display the type of faith that Joseph displays in the book of Genesis, chapter 50, verse 20. After he has been thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, imprisoned, he rises to the second greatest position in all of Egypt. And he stands before his brothers after all that they had done towards him. And he says, as for you, talking about his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many should be kept alive as they are today. The shield of faith reminds all of us in Christ that he is at work in our lives even when we don't think he is. We can believe that in faith. The helmet of salvation is the fifth piece of armor. Throughout this passage, many commentators will tell you and argue that Paul is referring back to a number of Old Testament passages, many of which come from the book of Isaiah. So this helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness actually come from a passage in Isaiah 59, verse 17. Here's what it says. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Now in the context of Isaiah, this passage is referring to when Jesus returns to redeem his people. 
Paul is not saying here that when you put on the helmet of salvation, that's when you're saved. We know that's not true because this letter is written to Ephesian Christians. So what is this helmet of salvation that Paul is referring to? Well, he's reminding us here that you need to constantly put on that helmet of salvation, not because it saves you, because you need to remember who saved you. That's why you put it on, to remind yourself of what Christ did for you, to remind yourself of the gospel. Here's one of the ways that Satan works. He wants Christians to doubt that God actually loves them. He wants Christians to doubt that when they repented of their sin and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he wants Christians to believe that that is not actually what saves you. Even though the Bible is very clear, that is what saves you. So we have to put on that helmet of salvation. We have to remind ourselves through the scriptures that this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He wants you to doubt your salvation. He wants you to believe that the gospel is not actually enough to save you. The cry of the reformers was salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is what we believe. There is nothing else that we can add on to salvation. We have to be very careful that we don't begin discussing religious rituals as what justify us before God. Now, no one could argue that one is saved by anything other than grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But let me put a caveat on that. If your life, if you say you believe that with your heart and in your mind, but you have no connection whatsoever to the bride of Christ, you have no personal relationship with Jesus himself, you never study the word of God, you never pray to God, you need to ask the Holy Spirit, have I truly been converted? Because those that are in Christ exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. They exhibit fruit in their life. So one that claims to be a follower of Jesus and they say with their mouth, I believe in uh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but it stops there and there is no evidence of the Spirit moving in their lives, then we should make sure that they understand what the gospel actually teaches and make sure they understand what it means to biblically respond to the gospel. Religious ritual does not save you. Hear me. Showing up on Sunday doesn't save you. Reading your Bible doesn't save you. Praying doesn't save you. But if those things do not exist in the life of so-called believers, then we need to take that individual back to the teachings of Scripture and make sure they understand what the gospel teaches and what our response is to it. And then number six, Paul talks about the sword of the Spirit. This is the one piece of armor that is offensive in nature. Christians are to use the sword of the Spirit, not to stand back against the schemes of the devil, but to actively 
defeat him with the sword of the Spirit. Now, what does Paul mean here by which is the word of God? Does he actually just mean any Bible verse? For instance, like we see Jesus using in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 when he's being tempted in the wilderness and Satan is tempting him. And on three different occasions, Jesus spits back at Satan specific scriptures to help him overcome that temptation. It actually seems more likely in the context of Ephesians, Paul is not saying that just any random verse can be used and that automatically means that Satan is going to run away from you. That's, that's not what Paul means by the word of God here. If you look back in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, you will see that in the context of this letter, the word of God is being referred to in this instance as the gospel. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God, which is the gospel. What does the gospel do? Romans 1.16, Paul tells us, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is power in the gospel. Do we believe that? Do we believe that lives can actually be transformed by communicating the truth of the gospel? If you're in Christ today, you better believe that. Because how else were you transformed? You were transformed by the gospel. The gospel, brothers and sisters, listen to me. The gospel is enough. It's enough. We don't have to have all these bells and whistles. Speak truth from God's word. People's hearts will be changed. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Jesus teaches the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So use the sword of the Spirit because the more that people hear the gospel, the more mad Satan gets. Because he doesn't want people understanding the gospel. He doesn't want people being converted to faith in Christ in response to the gospel. So we can push back against him the more we believe what Romans 1.16 says, that the power of the gospel changes lives. You want to make Satan mad? You want to push him back? You want to push the kingdom of darkness back? Faithfully proclaim what the Bible teaches about the gospel. That is what irritates Satan. But always remember that the war has already been won. Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, it's over. Now, we might lose battles here and there, but the war has already been won. So we can walk in victory today, not because of anything that we did, but because of what Christ did on our behalf. And then number three, as Paul finishes up this letter, he encourages us to walk in peace and in love. He closes out this letter by reminding all of the Ephesian Christians to pray for the saints and to pray for all of these prayers and these requests. But he also requests prayer for himself. This is what we love about Paul. He regularly shows us his own weaknesses. 
Look at verse 19. That when he preaches, he will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Verse 19 would be a helpful prayer for you to pray on my behalf. On preachers and teachers all around the world. That we would proclaim with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Paul concludes almost all of his letters by mentioning the names of brothers and sisters in Christ and giving the believers in those areas updates about where he's going to be going next, travel plans that he might have. And in this letter, he uses Tychicus. It's the man that Paul sent to encourage these Ephesian believers and to let them know how Paul was doing. And he concludes the letter by offering peace and love to the believers. If you are in Christ today, you have the peace of God and you have the love of God in your heart. And no matter what happens, you're going to be okay because Christ rules in your heart. So let me encourage you, church, just like Paul encourages the Ephesian believers to walk in that peace and in that love this morning. Know that God sent Jesus to die in your place for your sin so that you could have a restored relationship with God which ultimately gives you peace and demonstrates the love of God on your behalf. That peace and love is available to all in Christ Jesus. So as we close out this epistle, let me simply repeat Paul's own words to you, First Baptist. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Let's pray. Father, every single day, we are in a battle with the enemy. He desires for us to give in to temptation and sin. He wants to divide us. He wants to make us doubt our salvation. He wants to make us be in conflict with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But thankfully, you have given us this passage to help us stand against the schemes of the enemy. Help us to reflect and meditate more on this passage and what it means for us. God, if there were any today that are not in Christ, would you convict them of their sin? Help them to repent and believe in the good news of the gospel. Yes, following you is costly, but ultimately it is worth it. Move in the hearts of people today. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.